Welcome to Flake Miri, a show about Gwent. I'm Flake. I'm joined by Shin Miri. This is episode two, Shin Miri. Hey, Flake. It's great to be back to episode two of Flake Miri's podcast. Yeah, we are. Uh, this is a show about Gwent, and we always dive into much, much more and explore all the tasty tangents along the way. So if you guys have any questions, make sure you tweet at us or post on our Reddit post, stuff like that. Yeah, there's different ways to get get at us. I mean, between your Twitter, my Twitter, Reddit, uh, the comments on on these wherever this podcast is, uh, that's where you can reach us. We are going to have a mailbag segment eventually at the at the end of the show. We do got some stuff we want to talk to, or sorry, talk about rather. I mean, today's episode uh, is brought to you by uh, well, nothing because uh, we there's there's no sponsor at the moment, Shinmiri. This is where you and I sort of show our beautiful faces and say like this is the, these are the kinds of good people. That maybe you out there are listening want to sponsor our show, but we can pretend. So, um, for just for today, Shane Mary, I'll say that uh, today's show is brought to you by Aratusa's tutoring program, where you can teach an old spear new tips. That was a bad joke. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know. Yeah, and 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 you know, you know, speaking of bad jokes, we'll start off start things off with the official Dagon rumor report. What you got there, Flake? Well, today's uh, today's Dagon rumor report. Still no Dagon, still not happening. Not yet at least. It's just not happening. Oh man. All right. All right. No more Dagon. No more Dagon. <laughs> no more no more Dagon talk. I know. I just kind of I it's not a show if I don't just kind of weasel it in there. But uh, also, let's just blast back a little bit here. Gwent's been around for a little while. Shinmiri, you and I have been playing it for quite some time. Did you know that this this week in Gwent in 2018, CDPR launched their homecoming stream where Burza and Slama both dove into the updated ranking systems and the progression system. What we now kind of exist in, you know, like the uh, the the MMR system and and you know from 25 to to pro rank etc. That was kind of released and 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 exposed to the world uh in 2018 on this week. And it was quite the double uh the double dip. This was also the week where the gameplay trailer for Thronebreaker was released. It was pretty impactful uh as a week went 3 years ago. If I got to say this was a pretty big week 3 years ago. Yeah, I can't believe it's been that long. It's been three years since Homecoming, almost three years since Homecoming and Thronebreaker came out. And I mean, what a long way we've come. I think the game is evolved quite a lot since then and for the better, I'd say. Oh, definitely. I mean, th- this is a kind of a point of discussion that a lot of people have. And I see a lot of people discuss this um, and toss it out there. The most prominent way for people to express their you know, distaste for homecoming is usually as a comment on a YouTube video or a tweet or something where uh, somebody's like, uh, bring back old Gwent, bring back beta Gwent. But I honestly don't think that beta Gwent is better than current Gwent. I think you can agree either. Yeah, I don't think yeah. so either, man. Uh, it had its own flair. There's, you know, it's not like necessarily apples and oranges or yes, it's more like apples and oranges. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to compare them. I definitely enjoyed both versions of Gwent, but I think in the longer term, this Homecoming is much, uh, is a much more long-term sustainable uh, format and game. Well, yeah. I mean, and what's funny is like this is not even the topic that we wanted to get into mm-hmm. into this, but I think it's worth just kind of exploring just a little bit. 
um, you know, three row people are like, well, if there's two rows and there's and there's row limits and this and that. Frankly, it just kind of increased the skill ceiling to a degree where playing around stuff and keeping in mind the amount of real estate you have on a board to deploy things. It actually makes sense and it, it matters more. Um, if there's one thing that uh became a little bit over the top with old school Gwent was the fact that eventually rows just kind of didn't matter. Row locked units no longer were row locked in. Like everything mm-hmm. had like, here's an old school term for all of you kids out there. Do you remember when agility was a thing? Oh my God. I've forgotten that that word existed. That's a keyword that states a card can be played on more than one row right? that's it and it was uh, typically like a scoyatel kind of thing where a scoyatel mm-hmm. had a lot of agile units where they can just be played on any row and have their effect where prior to this a lot of the cards were just f- like flat out row locked so all the cards as you see them today where there's uh, a deploy effect that occurs only on a melee row or on uh you know the back row these are, are you could still play the card anywhere but old school gwent was such that you were just kind of locked into playing it on a particular row which um, I, I never understood what the the complaints about like oh we're going from three rows to two rows the game is dead you know like i, I never understood the obsession with the fact that the game went from three rows to two rows it's still the same game I don't think it's really took away any sort of significant skill or or flavor or soul of the game. Because on the surface, Shinmiri, two is less than three, so it's automatically on in some people's brain a a degradation, oh. right? I and I know I'm not, and I'm like I'm a part of me is saying that as a joke, as as just to make fun of the fact that, like, yeah, we can boil it down legitimately to that element, that the fact that, well, it's two rows and not three, and two is significantly less than three, and we've lost 33% of the quality of this game because of that. No, it's not it. And, and like, and frankly, when you have two rows instead of three, you can't hide away from your opponent's row effects or this or mm-hmm. reach on certain units in that regard. So, um, you know, when you're dropping weather on one unit, you no longer have two options to hide from it you only have mm-hmm. one so if you're stacking a row you might get punished it, it kind of plays into uh into that regard so i honestly like you believe that the removal of a, of a particular row in that case i guess it was the uh was it the range row yeah because it used to be melee arranged and siege rows yeah. so the range was the middle row um the, the removal of that middle row has really increased, I guess, a certain amounts of skill ceiling to the game as well as, as the row limits. I think that is incredibly important because you and I have casted, you know, so many matches. And how many times, Shinmiri, has that row, uh, that, you know, that row limit come into play to dictate or, or to sort of, you know, determine... Um, uh, when someone either passes or when someone plays a card or whatever, like that, the management of that has been in, integral to someone being a good player and elevating their game to elite. Just that's it's those kinds of things. I think that um, Homecoming has accentuated and kind of departed from when uh, you know the three row no limit kind of game that it used to be. Yeah, and you know the row limit probably spawned from a necessity of trying to trans translate the game over to mobile platforms with limited screen real estate but i think it does end up increasing the skill ceiling and introducing another aspect for for players to consider and i think that's a good thing like um definitely it's it's an additional aspect to kind of juggle and master make sure that you don't end up over swarming your own board or like maybe you need to control the lengths of the different rounds 
because of uh, your Nilfgaard opponent's going to fill your board with spies and stuff like that, right? Oh, 100%. 100%. And that's one of the things that uh, we want to get into in this episode is also when Shinmiri and I were discussing kind of, you know, what what's the meat uh, next to the potatoes of what this uh, this podcast is all about. And we, we decided that, you know what, there are certain decks out there that have spawned as being um, unique in their own way. And, and Shinmiri and I, you know, we've seen thousands upon thousands of games played. We've played thousands upon thousands of games. And what we have essentially decided is that there are certain decks out there that they, within the framework of what Gwent is in terms of rule sets, win two rounds, have more points than your opponent, two out of the three times, and you win the game. There are certain decks that just feel different. Yes, there are certain decks that I, I guess you, you coined the term... They have some more personality than the standard decks. You've got your standard decks that have like normal, uh, mundane win conditions, which just like, you know, we're going to play for card advantage. Maybe the standard is like, oh, on red coin, we can play some garbage, three three cards, throwaways, you know, play some carryover and then pass. Um, another really typical strategy is just like, you know, you're you're trying to you're trying to lock in maybe one card advantage or not lose on even these sort of things and then you're you're trying to remove some of your opponent's threats play some of your own play some points land play some engines play some control and then at the end of the day you just kind of like compare points and see who has uh, more points and, and then there's like this whole other league of you more unique more outrageous decks that do crazy things that make you really ask yourself. What just happened? Yeah. There there are decks out there that essentially take the, the standard playbook and throw it out the window. Decks where you're thinking, um, you know, uh, like you said, there's, there's this, you know, I don't want to call it paint-by-numbers way to play the game, but a lot of the times it's like, all right, the least amount that I can commit – uh, in, in earlier rounds that will guarantee me or, or, you know, secure a win for this round means that I have bigger assets to commit in rounds that matter in round two mm -hmm. or round three, whatever my strategy is. But generally speaking, it all kind of comes to the same thing because shooting from the hip and just dropping these massive bombs and like hit after hit after hit after hit, uh, it, it seems unorthodox. And that's kind of where you and I decided, you know what, there are some there are some decks, like I said, that have some personality out there. And one of them that you tossed out to me first is probably one of my most hated decks of all time. <laughs> I think I know which one it is. Well, I mean, you could go ahead and say it. You are the Skelligan does ambassador. It, does it rhyme with hippie? Uh, it does, in fact, rhyme with hippie, <laughs> though the mellowness of this deck might be in question because it does certainly evoke some anger uh, within me. The, the, the maelstrom of, of emotion within my core being always gets a little bit turbulent when that, that name is there. But yeah, Lippy is one of them. Yeah, and Lippy is kind of a deck that that uh, kind of bends the rules of the game a little bit, right? Like like you said, normally in a standard decks, you're trying to conserve your resources, not um, blow your load too early with, in round one with like slamming all your high provision golds. You want to save some of that stuff for later rounds for the for usually the determining round three after each player has won one round, but Lippy kind of flips that on the head and says, okay, I'm just going to throw all my best cards at you in round one. And then uh, I, at some point, I'm going to play Lippy, which shuffles all the cards that are in my graveyard with the cards that are in my deck. Like, they, they uh, reverse them. They swap. 
the cards from your graveyard and your deck. So the cards that you invested already in round one that went to your graveyard already now become what you draw into for the rest of the game. Yeah, and you get to potentially play those huge bombs twice. Exactly, which is something that you don't necessarily have to... to you don't have access to those kinds of resources twice. Typically, cards you play typically go to the graveyard, and unless you're playing a very graveyard-centric, uh, some type of um, you know uh, reanimation list that comes brings brings things back from the graveyard, puts them back on the board. If that's the whole your whole meat and potatoes of this entire picnic, well, that's that's fine. That's one way to do it. But this just takes that to a whole different level. Um, that is certainly one of them because again, it, it really turns what your what your standard thought process is uh kind of on its head because usually in in a lot of these cases shamiri when you're playing the game i find that oftentimes you're not looking to sprint ahead as far as you can in in, in certain rounds at least for the most part because value passing is a thing that's mm-hmm. definitely that's definitely what you want to do but with with decks like this they don't care because they're they're basically pedal to the metal as much as possible, at least for Lippy, in round one to get to get so far ahead that it's almost obscene for your opponent to continue. And if they do, you punish them. But like, it's it's it talks about like the deck talk is basically super top heavy. But again, doing it twice it, to the degree where it almost feels like you're cheating. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think that sort of stuff like that actually for me. I know you don't like lippy deck specifically but to me it does kind of make the game interesting because you have to think on your toes and think about okay this is you know not a standard game of gwent i have to think what how how does this deck exactly work what are its strengths and weaknesses and how do i exploit those things so with lippy as an example one thing you can potentially do there's a couple of options right um if you try to trade blow for blow with your good cards to trade with their good cards in round one, you're probably going to end up losing because they're going to play those those, uh, high-end cards twice and you are only going to play your high-end cards once. So what you could potentially do is you could try, and and this might not be necessarily the best strategy, but you could try something like, okay, I don't want to trade my good cards against your good cards. Let's just give up round one and pass and not let you get that much value from playing all your good cards twice. Because if you if I pass round one, then you're only getting to play a couple of good cards twice and not all of your good cards twice, right? <clears throat> Another strategy could be, okay, maybe I'm running such a good long round strategy, and Lippy is known for not having a long round strategy. They have a short round strategy with their Saris replaying all their Shield Maidens. Well, maybe my deck has such a better long round than your deck, even, even enough to like kind of... Um. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, um, what you can bulldoze, you can, bulldoze through right. your control tools, even in the long round. Then what I can do is I can fight really hard for round one, right? Fight really hard for round one. If I end up winning the round, I can go to a long round three where you're gonna end up being at a disadvantage because I my deck actually has a cohesive long round strategy. It doesn't so these sort of like on the spot adaptive strategies that force you to think on your feet i really like stuff like i think that it's i think that they're great for the game as much as i you know rag on the fact that lippy is just like this thorn in my side it is a rock in my shoe and i i despise it it's it's i think that decks that kind of operate this way as as 
I find that something like that, though, is just the problem I feel with Lippy specifically is the fact that it, it, it operates in a very linear fashion where it's basically, all right, I, I don't care what my opponent is doing for the most part. I only care when they pass, and I'm going to be dropping the same bundle of points uh you know based on what i've drawn and my whole objective here is basically uh secure this round and then in the short round you know lippy tutor go and here's a here's you know 40 some odd points that you have to deal with and in a, in a short amount of time and i get it and and what i don't like about that versus other decks of personality one that i want to propose to you right now um is that decks like Keltulus, for example, which is an incredibly um, deep personality-wise kind of deck. Like, when you say a Kelly deck, you know exactly what is in, in, entailed in that package. When you say Lippy, you know what's entailed. You've got, like, this, this image in your mind that's already painted this beautiful mosaic of, mm -hmm. all right, you say Lippy, I know what's happening. You see the board state in your head. You see the cards happening. You see the short round burst, etc. When you say Lippy, it's like it's kind of like, uh, when you say Keltulus, rather, you say the same thing. It's a Kelly deck. Well, shoot, I know that it's going to be really, really head-scratching to figure this out because that is one nasty card to come out here. And what's interesting is that the focal points of these of these personality-style decks are not even, like, finishers. Because if you say, I'm like, well, I'm playing um, Spell Gourd or something. You know that Gourd's kind of a finisher card uh, that, that comes out in that, in that degree. Uh, but cards like Lippy and Keltulus... These are de cards that are kind of facilitators to an overarching strategy. Um, they're 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 kind of engine pieces. Like Lippy's a reload, whereas Keltulus is this just this ominous threat. Um, it's not a finisher. It's not a. It's 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 kind of like a win condition, but that's not where your points are coming, right? Like that's why I like Keltulus so much more than Lippy. Yeah, and I think Keltulus is a great example. Um, it certainly is a win condition, but it makes the gameplay very unique in the fact that it's the only it's one of the only cards that makes players care about the their relative number of units that are on the board so it it incentivizes really unintuitive plays that we've seen on the highest levels of competitive gwent uh such as like pieable using his gutting slash to kill his own unit against colomone's uh Kaltolis in a huge tournament to win the game like you, you you never really think about oh maybe i should gutting slash and destroy my own unit but that was the winning line in a game for thousands of dollars uh at the highest levels of gwent to to kill your own unit so that the Kelt opponent's Keltolis is the only unit on their board and then you just threaten to discard discard your cards for a few turns and the Keltolis is killing herself every turn if your opponent doesn't play a smaller unit to block. Exactly, and and we've seen similar styles of of kind of this this I don't want to call it stagnation, but the decision tree that you have to take is like okay, like I could play something, but that's detrimental, and it's that goes on both sides. Same thing for the Keltulus player as well. It's not like what we've seen in the past. You and I in in previous, for instance, like Gwent Open number three, where you had uh, like Precision Strike. Those were like hyper control lists where we it's like we we you and i joke around okay uh the discard is the discard over under set at three and a half how many are there going to be like over three and a half under three and a half and and there's these situations where it's like the first person to blink eventually you have to put some bodies on the board and they're probably going to just get absolutely
completely wiped out. But with with this Keltulis, there's like this uh, there's this situation where I remember I was playing with Keltulis uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I I had just absolutely dominated round one. Same thing in round two, and I had a two card advantage. Uh, round three was I had my Keltulis out again with Witch's Sabbath and. There was a situation actually where after my opponent played their last card, I needed to, if I played any other card, just even like if I wanted to be a dick, if I wanted to just rub it in and just BM and play my cards because I was in such a commanding lead, I would have lost. I needed to pass with those two cards because as soon as I started playing them, it would have burnt down points on my side and I would never have been able to recover. Yeah, and the card that you play is worth fewer points than the card that Keltolos actually would have burned had it gone back to their turn, right? Precisely, and that is kind of why I feel like Keltulis to me is a, a better representation of what this like these outside the box these these game changing style cards and decks these personality car uh, uh, decks are because it it forces more uh, strange decision making for your opponent it kind of warps what everybody's perception of how a game should go right because you're mm-hmm. never thinking to kill your own unit you're never thinking of discarding a card because you think that it's ne- it's it's just never in your interest to just give up tempo like that to give up your 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 initiative like that in that regard and um i i mean when it comes to personality decks there are so many more that are popping up because of these fantastic designs that come through again i hate lippy with a passion i i despise it it is a a boon on society but cards like keltulis just pull that whole um that whole genre of of personality decks of uniqueness into the stratosphere of fascination that i i can't I just can't not admire. Yeah, I think some of my favorite moments from the history of Gwent have been uh, unintuitive moments, unintuitive plays. Like like you said, killing, hitting your own unit with your spe- spell. Maybe boosting your opponent's unit. You remember in beta when Villain Tretonmirth was a popular card. Oh man, are you talking about you, the Super JJ move? Yeah, Super JJ, Swallow Potion on your his opponent's unit so that his opponent's Villain Tretonmirth would scorch himself instead of super jj like stuff like that is i feel like it's really really cool it makes you feel very satisfied when you find that unintuitive line of play that actually ends up winning you the game being the winning line right and i feel like decks like this typically uh are are, are better spotlights for the creativity that players can show in order to get up that that to that extra echelon and one thing that I, I always tell players, it's like everybody talks about how, you know, card games are just games of luck and this and that. But in reality, they're not, uh, because if that was the case, then you wouldn't have the same faces just dominating the ladder all the time. There's skill that's involved. And we have seen how a lot of these these high skill ceiling decks, they might sort of flounder on the ladder there may they may not be the number one choice in a ladder situation but we see them pop up in tournaments um keltulis was like the flavor of the day in in uh, before sort of relics came around because it was a nice control check for certain players and it was a situation of you either have the answers for this deck or you don't and you're going to be at my mercy you're going to be under my thumb for two rounds with keltulis just going crazy and cards like the witch of sabbath now just making that twice as nasty uh it's it's great to see um and i really this is one thing that i would always want to stress the developers that went to just continue down the road create cards that are not just massive point 
generators create cards that warp and change the way players have to play the game to win. And that's not just from the perspective of the player who plays that special card, but on the other side as well. Because Keltulus, when that card came out, it was almost like people were like, why would I play this? It seems so kind of... You know, it's Rolog, yeah. it can get locked, it can get this. And, th and then people figured it out, and they created such a tight deck that just has withstood the test of time since it has been printed. Yeah, it's it's been one of the longest-lasting archetypes to be, be remain somewhat relevant that I can think of for, for you know, out of a lot of decks that have been in the history of Gwent. And I, I think it's a really tough challenge for, for de game developers or card game developers to... To balance the idea of, yes, interesting, unique mechanics that force you to do weird things and cool things, but also not to the point where it breaks the game. These sort of really fun, unique cards, they're also the easiest to like make the game feel uh, unwinnable or like nothing you can do. Uh, those type of feelings from their opponent. So like examples like Lippy, like I... I loved playing Lippy, especially when it was off meta before it became popular, right? I, you remember, you know, Colgrim. Colgrim is another really good example of these like unique, unique decks that, for example, Colgrim decks can go down multiple card disadvantage on purpose in round one, even after your opponent's pass to go down card disadvantage so that they can activate their their low adrenaline Colgrim earlier in round two. And uh, hide it behind a defender, maybe copy the Colgrim with Letho Kingslayer. I had so much fun playing that deck when it first came out in Way of the Witcher. It's like one of my favorite clips on my stream of all time. I just, I had like negative six card advantage, and I just watched the Colgrims, the two Colgrims grow up by like 12 per turn. And I had like 120 point Colgrims at the end of the game. And my opponent just futilely trying to catch up. Every card they played was worth like 10 points, but I would gain like 24 from my Colgrims. <laughs> and it was just hilarious. But it, which is fascinating. Those are fun for a while, right? But then if you keep playing against it and you can't figure out a way to defeat the deck, it can get very annoying from the other side. It is. And like, I, it's the, I think that is a great example again of one of these. Um, these um, you know meta warping style cards that create situations that opponents might not necessarily uh be prepared for like you said i'm gonna go down cards and what's the reason well it's not just to secure the win but now i'm playing with less cards and if you have no answer to this colgrim i am on adrenaline now for not just two turns because last save means dick to me i am on adrenaline for six turns and it's it's like i'm gonna drop it and if you cannot pick up on this whole rigmarole that I'm, I'm throwing out there if you do not catch the wind of this then you're in for a surprise because every card you that if you think that just this is it like 24 points 24 points 24 points that 10 point card is actually worth negative 14 points you could just pass and make this a lot less painful for mm -hmm. you um i'm hoping that there are more cards like this that come out i i'm i'm, I'm curious to, to to know what you think um you know what is the most recent card that would be like that like i feel like something like witch's sabbath could be kind of to that degree it's almost like a lippy light for for uh for for monsters because it has but it has like a niche because a card like lippy 
Um, it forces, uh, same thing with Kaltulus. It forces the entire deck design to support what that card wants to do. It's not a win condition in itself because all the supporting cards are what you're going to win you the game, but it's mm -hmm. enough of a, um, uh, a benefit to, to your game plan. It's basically the heart and soul of what you're trying to do and you need to support it. It's like any sports team. Like I'm going to use the, I'm going to use a hockey team. For example, the Montreal Canadians whom I adore and love and am a season ticket holder for, um, they have, or had, he's on, he's injured right now, but Carey Price is like a world-class goaltender and they've basically designed their entire setup to support that one massive piece and they have found success from relative, uh, moving forward <laughs> with that. But that, that said, that's kind of like what these cards are. You see a card like Keltulis, you see a card like Lippy and you're like, I see the potential in this, but everything else I have to do, the remaining 159 provisions have to be for this uh yeah i think like witch's sabbath is definitely an example of that i think another recent example would be something like meditating mage which you know we know has caused quite a ruckus in the gwent community over the past with its cheap resilience and plethora of ways for northern realms to copy it and yeah that's another example of a deck that kind of breaks the, the the standard mold of how you're supposed to play the game another deck that will is happy to go multiple cards down in round one if your opponent passes early but yeah there are there are some cool strategies in beating that as well like um i i detailed in one of my reddit posts uh last week you know using a cool mechanic like a hero pass is is really interesting and and the deck the fact that the deck promotes or incentivizes players to find these cool niche interactions. For those of you who don't know what a hero pass is, it's where you are so far ahead of your opponent that you can pass before they pass the round and still win the round. So, uh, like that, that can be a, a hero pass can be utilized very well against a strategy like meditating mage. So, a, a true that's really cool. a true hero pass, in my opinion, and you could probably uh, come back on me on this one. A true hero pass to me is when you've lost round one and you pass in round two while your opponent still has cards has a, to play. Yeah, That to me is the true hero pass where you're like, okay, I got two cards left. You've got one. I don't think you have enough to come back at me, but if I'm wrong, then I lose the game. That's the hero yeah. pass. Yes, yes. That is definitely the origin. That's, the, that's where most players originally see the use of a hero pass is yeah when you've already lost round one and you're like on match point or or so you can say right like your opponent's on match right. point uh if they win one more round but you just like you know you just say all right i don't i think you're bluffing i don't think you have enough points to to actually tie my score here i'm just gonna pass before without even seeing your last card but yeah you can you can kind of um translate that idea into round one as well Oh, for sure. Uh, that's uh, you need two things. Number two, you need the lead, and number sorry, number one, you need the lead, and number two, you need balls of steel. Like that's what you yeah. gotta, you got to have some chutzpah to do it uh, because it's it's not for the faint of heart. I found because I have taken some pretty nasty uh, hero passes in my in my in my career in round two where I've been like, yeah, you don't have it. You take the pass and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, you did. Okay, not only okay, did you, yeah, you, you, you caught me. Yeah, you, you, you caught me right handed. What's the most embarrassing is when you give a speech, you're streaming, and you give a speech. And, and you're like, okay, I'm definitely going to take the hero pass. There's no way he's even close. 
And then after you hero pass, they actually beat you by like double digits. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, it was it was like barely. It was it was one of those things where you're like, okay, you're 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 taking that that inventory, right? We're like, okay, I've seen this, I've seen this, I've seen this. Yeah. What's the worst it can be? It could be if it's a heat wave, I'm safe. If it's this, I'm safe. If it's mm-hmm. this, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. There's nothing that they could do, and suddenly they just like pull out a scorch or like a just a vanilla like, spear or tip yeah. or something. You're like what the hell and you're like all right <laughs> give my regards to your balls because that was just absolutely brilliant like congratulations yeah, that's what i love about the hero pass too it, it takes not just balls of steel and a lead but also a good read on your opponent and understanding your opponent's strategy and deck and what they're likely to play and what they're likely to still have left it takes a lot of skill um i'm gonna put a call out there to everybody who's watching or listening to this if you have clips of your own hero passes send them to me the failures and the successes we want to see those uh for sure i think that would be a, a really cool segment on the show is just like like the weekly hero pass of the like, or the hero pass of the week or something like that but uh, uh speaking of reaching out to everybody out there we have opened the mailbag so uh just after this quick break uh, shinmiri and i will be back to open the mailbag and answer all your questions or a good part of them that you guys have sent to us over the past week Okay, it's letter time, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, no snail mail here. It's all been done through Reddit or Twitter. Uh, you guys can message us on Discord as well. Either way, if you guys want to get in touch with us, if you guys have a question that you have for either Shinmiri or myself, just ask us. We're going to dig into the them uh, on the show over here every week. We like to hear what you guys have to say, Shinmiri. Do you want to get first dibs on this one, or do you want me to go first? All right, I can go first. All right, hit it. All right, first question from a random guy 48285 two on reddit does shinmiri rope as much when playing off stream or is the roping mainly because he is explaining his thinking process to chat on stream great question from random guy um i definitely rope as well when i play off stream but not as much so he's definitely they're, they're definitely right about like part of the roping coming from explaining my thought process and interacting with chat and answering questions but i think uh, if you want to play well and you want to improve at Gwent, one of the best things you can do is actually take your time and and rope. Uh, I, and I say rope with uh, you know no negative connotation whatsoever. I think it's actually perfectly fine to use the time allotted to you as long as you're using the time for something constructive and not just trying to purposely waste your time, right? And I think even after you've decided on what you're going to play this turn, you can definitely use you can definitely do a lot with the time that you have remaining. You can think about, okay, what am I going to do for the next turn or the rest of the round? What's my plan for the rest of the round or even future rounds? What do I expect my opponent to respond with after the play that I just made? And does that change what I actually want to do right now? Because a lot of times, I've, I know I do this. I, I've seen a lot of other squad players do this. They will have decided a play early on. But then after thinking through all this stuff, predicting what's still coming, realize that maybe there's a better play. Maybe there's an alternate line. And you wouldn't have seen that if you just slammed your card right away as soon as you saw a good play. 
What I find is that, and we discussed this on on, on previous uh, broadcasts as well, is like a lot of the times it's like you see the play, it's just so obvious, and you're wondering why the pro or is taking their time to make the most obvious play. It's like there's the scenario, you have the heat wave. Why the hell would you even be sitting like con- considering <laughs> this? It's just like it's a it's an automatic point and click. That's why you have pack the card. It's there to counter this thing. But what a lot of people don't understand is that if this turn right now is so straightforward, the next one might not be it. So if you have your, I don't know how many turn, how much time do you have per, per turn? I know because I think it's sixty seconds. Okay, if you would know because you go fifty nine point nine every single time. So, <laughs> uh, if you've got sixty seconds per turn, um, if if it takes three seconds to make that turn, the next turn might need ninety seconds of actual time to sort of parse out. So you kind of investing every single ounce of time that you have to just parse out what the sequencing is for protect particular turns. Take the time that's allotted to you to to pass it along and i think that there's there is a negative connotation to if anyone's going to turn this into a positive it's going to be yushin mary captain wholesome in his entirety uh <laughs> but you. i will just say this i mean roping is not an it should not be a negative thing there are people who are out there who are assholes who just who purposely rope because they want to waste your time because that's what gives them their jollies sure no problem but for everyone else roping is simply a way to make use of the resources given to you Resources given to you being starting all the way in the deck builder with the provisions that are given to you. Then the cards you have, the points you have, the this, the that, the whatever. Part of the resources that are allotted to you is that clock. And people do not think about that because it does not necessarily factor into a point total. But that is a resource, friends, that you have at your disposal. And every edge you have, every edge that you're ever going to get in the competitive scene is how you utilize every single resource that you have at your disposal, clock included. So take heed of the rope master himself when he says that yeah even off stream he's roping because he's thinking about the the future of the the, that particular round and future turns it's important man it's just i i cannot stress it enough i i don't do it because i am very willy-nilly fire from the hip when it comes to gwen but for smarter players like yourself do it just do it all right question shinmiri so it's coming from Mole Witcher on Reddit. And uh, Mole Witcher asks, I feel like defenders are unhealthy for the game and recent cards have heightened how unhealthy they are. How do you feel about defenders and their place in Gwent? You want to take a stab at this one first or? Sure. Um, I think defenders have the potential to be unhealthy and the strength of defenders and the healthiness of defenders, uh, it definitely scales depending on what the biggest threat game are or in faction are because defenders are only as good as the biggest threat that they're actually right so if you get more cards like kaltolas for example you get more cards like witch's sabbath or Bruver, even i think a Bruver Bruver is actually one of the biggest threat cards in the game he's just not trapped in an archetype that's not very good right now but like you know the more of those huge cards you print that are just like answer this or lose type cards the the less the, the the more unhealthy defenders will become and i think the devs recognize that and that's why you know this past season or this past this last patch they buffed a bunch of purify cards, which is the natural counter to defender and like stuff like um peller for example got buffed from five provision four provision and that's a step in the right direction in my opinion but you would still have to draw your purify or your answer in round one. And I think that 
I don't know if we're quite there yet that in, that something drastic needs to be done. Maybe not yet, but I do. I I would like to see you know not as many answer or lose on the spot type cards being printed, and maybe I don't know if defenders need a rework. It would be kind of tough. Like some some viewers have suggested to me, maybe defenders only defend their adjacent instead of the entire row yeah so that they can defend only a limited they can defend max two units instead of entire row um but then you know you'd have to rebalance them a lot in terms of points i i I really really like that that rework for defenders uh another one would be that maybe just defenders are susceptible to locks like that could be that could be it as well um i think that what you touched upon is true i don't think that defenders as an actual card is necessarily the issue uh i think it's what they're protecting that typically is it's the fact that Mm -hmm. these defenders are creating an extra layer of answer answer situation because a lot of these defenders are not just a five provision removal to deal with um a lot of these these cards are not just a uh, a gutting slash away from being killed or a uh, an Alzer's Thunder away from being killed. Usually they're uh, Yen's Invocation and a Heat Wave or something along those lines. It's a big it's a big ask to get rid of one of those. You could move it, but then your opponent's just going to play the card that they want to protect next to it anyways. What's the the issue with these cards is not necessarily that you know they're, they're they protect a row it's that they they create this like two-factor authentication that you need <laughs> to, to get to what your opponent is trying to present as a threat. So, and it's not like a, a, a catch-all. You can't just crowbar your, crowbar your way through it. For the most part, you need a specific key to get past it, which in for most part, uh, most situations is a purify effect, right? So <laughs> that in itself is difficult because you're creating a... A situation of all right, you you probably have an answer for this threat, but do you have that specific thumbprint that you need to access that the, the you know the the lock the padlock for what you can possibly bust through? No, there's that two th- that two factor authentication, and the first one is often the hardest because it's it's the most specific. It's purify or huge removal and if that's the case yeah. then you're likely not going to be able to get to the everything else not to mention on oftentimes those cards are trading up they're like nine provision cards that trade up for 10 provision removals like a heat wave or something mm-hmm. big um you know if you're if you've just been putting all the eggs in your sheldon basket in order to drop down for massive damage maybe that sheldon can kill it but that's not what it wants to kill because then the threat still exists so i think that defenders in general are not necessarily unhealthy uh i think that they may need like mary suggested that his chat had maybe suggested is like a little bit of a rework that they're not necessarily these catch-alls that that are, are like these umbrella effects for an entire row because a lot of the things that they're protecting are not always are not always row locked so just moving that defender is not enough just locking you can't lock the defender just you have to purify it and then find another answer and purification of that unit is a four point low tempo play that is not really going to cut it for the most Mm -hmm. part i think i I think you're really right on you hit the nail on the head with like the fact that defenders need a very specific answer and it would make it more healthy if you could answer them with a wider variety of things like a lock maybe like a movement maybe like uh even some sort of damage or whatever um and yeah, like I think uh, 
An example of a problematic card that tends to hide defend behind defenders a lot these days is like Idarin, for example, right? Like defenders often used to protect a card like Idarin that can just completely pop off and make so many copies of the same bronze, same card, not even necessarily bronze, but so so many copies of the same card um, over and over again. And you can get really degenerate strategies like Meditating Mage or uh, what is it? imperial practitioner which is probably right. a weaker version but like stuff like that and uh even in the in the relics decks from two months ago with the gurnicoras and the mamunas and the fruits and the self eaters maybe maybe you just nerf cards like a darn a little bit and then defenders aren't really a problem I think, well, ultimately, I mean, again, it, it comes down to the fact that the, it, as long as they exist, it's it's going to be protecting a card that can be problematic. I think that any major sort of focal point card, like you said, you mentioned cards that are not Rolock. You mentioned Adarin. I'm thinking of things like Full Test. I'm thinking of things like, um, um, we mentioned them earlier, Nilfgaard card grows based on the discrepancy of your deck. Colgrim. Uh, Colgrim. Yeah, Colgrim. Yeah. These are not Rolock cards. So it's not just a matter of like, okay, your opponent plays the Cave Troll, you move it to the back because I want to lock or deal with your Keltulus that might come out after that. Mm -hmm. This is just, you can go ahead. You can move and and you know ping pong my defender back and forth i don't care because i'm just gonna drop that card behind it every single time um so yeah it, who knows man it might be a situation where the defender itself i like this the, the idea of the defender but i think that maybe it needs to get uh looked at in terms of um you know finding finding answers and um i just want to touch upon something again we like tangents here when purify came out um and same thing when when poison came out there's a lot of these little extra elements that were introduced to Gwent over time, like uh, like Bleeding and Vitality, which came out with, came out with Crimson Curse uh, or um, that that faction. Then we had Armor reintroduced. Then we had like, you know, Shield and this and that. Like um, one of them was Poison. When Poison came out, people laughed at Poison. People thought Poison was bad. People, nobody wanted to pay, take two turns to kill something. And then mm -hmm. Poison became super awesome. Wherein when Poison was introduced and Purify was introduced, people were like, these are both dumb. And now they're so integral, and they have really shaped, um, you know, how certain decks are built, how certain decks function, and they have been become to certain degrees identities of entire archetypes. Yeah, I think the main reason poisons were kind of laughed at initially is just that there was not this critical mass of enough good poison cards to put into one deck. You can't play a deck with two poisons. It's just you're not going to be consistent enough in drawing your two poisons, and even if you do. If your opponent has one purify or one consume or something, then your poisons are missing the mark, right? You need at least like three poisons in your deck to even think about putting poison. Yeah. All right. Um, so. Yeah. And last quick note about defenders is that the existence of defenders is kind of important for balance because it does serve a purpose. It it keeps control decks potentially in check. Otherwise, if you just deleted defenders from the game, it would maybe upset the engine threat type decks, the balance between engine threat type decks and control decks, because you wouldn't have a way to kind of slow control down in its trap. Right. It, it, it might be just that they're, I mean, oftentimes like these defenders are just, they're just a big FU to decks that just run the single heat wave to get rid of the, the single massive threat. Right. And, and that's a learning process. You, 
you know, put dip your toe into the meta and see how it feels. Do you need a second mm-hmm. removal card? Do you need that purify? And, and that's just all part of uh, being a, a top to- a top tier player is just being able to sort of fish that out. All right. Uh, next questions to you, Shinmiri. All right. What color would your lightsabers be? This question is from Ellis the Thunderbird on Reddit. Okay. Well, I know what color mine would be. And now here's the thing. It's the fact that, um, I don't know if you knew this, but the actual colors of the lightsabers mean something. Uh, there mm-hmm. is an actual, uh, so green uh, of the Jedi is it has to do with uh, more so negotiation, mediation, uh, strong in the force. They're not warriors. They're more of, of mediators. They're more of negotiators, peacekeepers. Um, red, we know that. It's Sith and it's like dark side. Blue is more uh, warrior-related, skilled with lightsaber, more combatant. Uh, they're more right. like, like knights and soldiers. Uh, purple is more balance between dark and light, a strong overall in all aspects. Uh, and yellow is uh, more, they're called like, uh, they're called like sentinels. And the sentinels are kind of, they're, they're out there. They're more like espionage, more just go in, destroy the dark side kind of thing. I would say for myself, as the rogue cavalier type of person that I am, I feel like I would probably be more as the the yellow lightsaber, the Jedi Sentinel lightsaber. Uh, that's kind of what I would be. Nice, very unique. Not you don't you don't see many yellow lightsabers out there. At least not in like most, the main. Most famously um, wielded by uh, Jedi Master Plo Koon, uh, who is in the movies and is in the original, uh, or sorry, in on the original. Oh, really? The prequels. Yeah, he's the dude. He's got like the mouthpiece. You see him flying around. Plo Koon is pretty oh, badass. Uh, okay. You'll see him. Uh, so that that's my answer. Now, um, I don't know. If- now, for me, I, I actually, I'm not as big of a Star Wars nerd as you, but I did actually know some of that, that like, at least I knew the concept that the colors actually mean something and are not just completely arbitrary. But my answer has nothing to do with Star Wars lore <laughs> or like what, what, you know, these colors mean. My lightsaber is obviously purple. I'm Skellige Ambassador. Skellige is my favorite faction. Gotta go with purple. Uh, so does that make Mace Windu your favorite Jedi? No. No. But <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson is pretty badass. Yeah, he is sure. badass. Absolutely he's badass. All right. That's uh, that's for you, Ellis. Thanks for uh, writing in. Last question for this episode is by Thnowman. Uh, I think that's kind of like a play on Snowman. Thnowman on Reddit asks, um, what features or gameplay elements from other card games would you like to see incorporated into Gwent? Hmm, should I go first on this? Uh, if you want to. I know what I want, uh, what I'm going to say. But I'm, I want to see if you want to go first. If not, I can definitely take the rails. Sure. Okay. Um, so as for other card games, I've played Hearthstone and I've played Magic the Gathering. They're not very similar to Gwent. Gwent is a very unique card game. So not everything from other card games would translate very, that would make much sense when translated to Gwent. But I think the thing that I would like the most that other card games may have, especially other digital card games, is like some sort of a replay system. Um, Being able to go back to a game that that you played in the past and just watch it step by step. You could like increment the every move that you, you or your opponent makes and basically kind of go through it and be able to analyze it and, and figure out where, you know, where the game was won or lost. If you could have made any different decisions that would have benefited you, 
and and I think that would be really useful in, for a lot of players in improving their own game. And One, the other, yeah. Oh no, no. Uh, I was going to say one thing that uh, Mythgard had uh, as a game that I thought was incredible was the fact that you were able to go back and and rewatch in as it was played any game that you had played in the past month or season, and you could go watch anyone else's game that was recorded on Ooh. ladder. You can go and see like, oh, yesterday this player person played this person. So you go click on it and it would replay the entire game and you could fast forward, you can go to like twice speed, three times speed, four mm -hmm. times speed, and you could watch the games occur as they were played in like real time. And it was a, a really great element. And so I, I ha I'm, I'm gonna, plus one on that one but uh that's not the one i was saying but i keep going because that was a really good all one. right i got another one but if this is the same one that you you want to say then you take over i don't yeah. want to i don't want to step on your toes or anything okay my other my other idea that i liked from other card games was uh in hearthstone there's like this history bar on the left right and Gwen has that as well the history bar on the left but i think Gwen's history bar could be more detailed and have more uh information there especially when it comes to like when a player chooses to target something with a card's deploy effect or order, or even like a squirrel to banish something from your graveyard. Like right now, if squirrel banishes something from your graveyard and you weren't paying attention, there's actually no way for you to actually get that information of, of what it actually banished. So like just more information like that on the history bar would be very nice. It's quality of life. Thing. I have been caught in the past before where a squirrel comes down and eats something out of my graveyard and myself as a Squirtle player, I look in there, I'm like, he didn't take my owner Mancy, idiot. And then I drop my force protector, and it's mm -hmm. a, and it's a brick. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, okay. I, <laughs> I have been had. I have been absolutely had. Uh, those are that's a good one as well. I do agree that the history bar needs a little bit more detail. And the fact that uh, this uh, you had mentioned this uh, on on one of the discords as well, and I got a plus one this uh, again is the fact that if you deploy a squirrel, there's got to be an animation, much like when uh, like the um the viper which are the card the mill card whatever kingslayer whatever it's called these days when that hits the board it has that animation of like poof it's gone and you see it if they did that with squirrel oh the amount of headaches that would save me and the amount of humiliation because there was absolutely a shame concede after that occurred <laughs> uh mine would be uh i want to see and i don't know how this is going to flesh out so if you guys have ideas send them in but some kind of alternate win condition. And I understand that other card games have this. There's some sort of like, if you have all of these units on the board at the same time, at the end of your turn, you win the game. Or at the start Exodia. of your turn. Yeah, like that kind of thing. It exists in various different card games. In this card game, I'm trying to think of how, how that can work. If you had like some super high provision, really low power garbage units, and it's like, if you if, if you end the round on all, with these on the board round three if you and these are on the board you win the game despite the the, the total like that could be fascinating like it, the way that you kind of have to set it up obviously it'd be a nightmare to balance and figure out but mm -hmm. that's something that i would like to see tried even if it was a separate format or a separate like seasonal or something to test it out mm -hmm. but it seems ridiculous like how how other card games within their rule set and the way that the games are designed can kind of support it but mm -hmm. Gwent is like Gwent is so unique, and I, I keep telling people like, oh, what's what's what you know what's better, this or that game? Like, what's better, Gwent or Magic? Gwent or this? They're completely different animals. Like, they're completely different animals. Yeah. You can't even equate them. They're they're both card games, yes, but the rule set, the framework, everything, the execution, completely different. Like a one strength, fifteen provision unit that says counter four 
if this counter gets to zero, you win the game or something like that. Yeah, or or like you had. Well, what if there were three of those? Three one provision, uh, one yeah, oh, three fifty. One sorry, power. One power, fifteen provision. Their game text reads: at the end, uh, at the end of your turn, deal five damage to ad- adjacent units, and you had to have like three of them on the board at the same time. Or it was like deal ten damage to adjacent units. So you had to like play them, but at the end of the turn, if they're if you don't have anything in between them to kind of like keep them alive, mm-hmm. they'll kill each other. So and they're <laughs> worth nothing. Like that would be a fascinating way. Like how would you do that? You'd have to like put like meat shields in between them to that so that mm-hmm. your but your opponent will will know what's coming because they're gonna have three of them so really the onus is on the player to draw all three protect all three and let their opponent deal with it because you have three on the same row they're just gonna yeah. cannibalize each other and it's it's i mean idea. it's interesting to talk about nightmare to balance like you said like in, our examples are probably pretty bad because like you could just <laughs> kind of hide the fact that you're playing these cards and then when your opponent passes you just play all of them yeah. and and then you really only have to win one round instead of two, right? Yeah. Um, I think a more realistic idea is actually kind of like Salamander. You ever seen those like double oh. Salamander syndicate decks? Yeah. It's kind of like an alternate win condition, right? Poison everything on the board. Right. Uh, but you have like a Veiled unit that survives. Yeah. And I mean, if your opponent's playing Veiled, then it's a different story, right? Yeah, but then you're gonna you're also going to be playing some Purify to get rid of Veil or... Some some sort of answer for potential uh, veil, you know. Yes, yes. I, I'm just saying it's out there. It's a possibility. It's something that I was that like kind of <laughs> comes to me at night where I'm like that would be kind of ridiculous. Um, all right, we're gonna save it for a future episode. But I want I, I, for 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 episode three, Shibiri, I'm gonna ask you uh, what would a card look like that said just that just deployed that said draw a card like stats provisions etc i would i'd be curious oh to god know. Uh, we could silver discuss spy that. flashbacks oh yeah but no but this one plays on your side of the board so it's even funkier but yeah those would be some silver spy flashbacks uh great episode chimera again uh this is episode two of uh hopefully a thousand and <laughs> we'll see who we'll start our trek early uh, but yeah man i had a lot of fun yeah same as always pleasure to chat with you all things gwent whether it's gwent related or not always fun to have a chat and you and i will see each other again later this week won't we flake oh we will uh keep in mind friends that the gwent open number four is occurring this weekend again we are recording this currently it's uh the 19th of october so you'll see this a little bit uh we're coming at you from the past but it's okay because in the future you will see us together again for gwent open number four stay tuned for that and uh, again if you have questions for shin miri and i please uh you can you know hit us up on discord twitter uh in our in our gwent chat sorry in our twitch chats etc all that other nonsense otherwise uh just be well everybody shinri i love you man i'm gonna end it on that way as i usually do yeah i love you too flake and we obviously love you guys the viewers and the listeners take care of yourselves and we'll see you next week